And we're back with another episode of Beyond the Block. We're back. Yes, welcome back and thank you guys for listening. Derek, you been all right, man? Yes, I've been doing well. Yeah. Awesome. It has been an interesting week. There are a few things to talk about. So I wanted to talk about um, a story that came out a couple of days ago. The September 6th, you're familiar with them, right? I am. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one of the September 6th, her name is uh, Lavina Fielding Anderson. Um, she applied for rebaptism into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and she was denied the opportunity for uh, rebaptism. Now, Anderson was excommunicated back in uh, 1993 for publishing a piece on uh, Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, that described ecclesiastical abuse of uh, Mormon intellectuals. You can still find the uh, you can still find the piece on the Dialogue website, dialoguejournal.com. What I didn't know about Anderson is that she continued to go to church even after being excommunicated. She has been to church twenty six years. Twenty six years, like ever since she'd been excommunicated. And I'm just like, all right, go ahead, Miss Anderson. Like I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. Like that's something that's something I could see myself doing. Like even if the church did kick me out. I would still come because the first presidency can't get in the way between me and my relationship with Christ. That is the kind of discipleship I would expect from somebody who gets excommunicated and gets excommunicated, I would argue, not under a proper circumstance. Right. But anyway, she has been going for the last 26 years. Now, Anderson's salvation, like I said, it's it's between her and God. And her response to the rejection is very much something I would say in such a situation. She said, quote, if there's unfinished business, it is the first presidency's, not mine. Close quote. And I really appreciated that mm-hmm. because this just comes from a self-assurance that you know you have done everything that you should be doing and can be doing to get right with God the best you can. Because if anything, like, like she seems to acknowledge, nobody can get between her and her relationship with Christ, but you know, having her church membership back would allow her to serve the kingdom in so many more ways just by having her membership back. So I could see why she would want it, but I can also see why she seems to be unbothered by it. You know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, she goes on. It didn't seem that the first presidency gave her a reason for the rejection, and it also seemed that her local leaders fully expected her petition for reinstatement to be honored. Now, on the one hand, I don't know. They can't stop you from attending church, and they can't even totally stop us from participating in church. Like, she still sings in the choir and everything, or she does. She still does what she can, uh, despite being excommunicated. What I don't understand, though, is, um, like, what does the church stand to lose by not allowing her to come back? That is the biggest thing I'm struggling with. Now, she did posit two things when she when she shared the news of her rejection. She said the one thing is that... There are issues that she was, there are issues connected to her excommunication that aren't quite resolved. So that Mm -hmm. could be one thing. Or the other thing is that um, the church may not want to reopen old battles by reinstating her. Mm -hmm. That was the other thing. I, I, like, I can understand it, but I still don't think the church stands to lose that much by bringing her back. I feel like they stand to lose a lot more by keeping her out than by bringing her in. And I feel like a lot of people would feel like that, but I just don't see that good of a reason to keep her out. 
because two of the other September 6th, they were welcomed back, granted under uh, different presidents of the church and first right. presidencies, but I, I just don't get the point of keeping her out. What do you think? Yeah, I've met... The situation is different, but Maxine Hanks is another one of the September 6th, and I met her, and she was reinstated in the mid, I think, like 2012 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that I've understood it is, isn't that she retracted any of her stuff. She wrote some feminist things many, many years ago, and basically yeah. the church caught up to where she is so that she didn't even have to retract anything to rejoin the church. Mm-hmm. And I think... That's probably true with a, a number of people who who have been excommunicated or left the church. That uh, the church is now now catching up, in a sense. Okay. And that I don't know all the details of her case. About to I say, th- I started reading her paper, like her yeah. piece, but uh, it's like sixty pages long, so I didn't get all the way through it. But uh, it yeah. does seem to deal with a lot of. Uh, it, issues of issues surrounding feminism that she said still haven't been all the way resolved. I don't know what those issues are, but I suspect that might be part of the reason. Right. I don't know. Right. And I think an organization that doesn't allow a healthy sense of self-regulation is not going to survive. Um, it's not going to be healthy. It's not going to be, you know... For example, if my let me just talk about my body as an as an example, like my brain controls my all of my all of the nerves that control my muscles. That's my that's one thing that my brain can do. The other thing that my brain does is it receives information from all of my other nerves in my body. Right, we've got the the nerves that go to the muscles, and then we've got the nerves that come back with all the sensations. Now what would happen if only one of those channels worked? Like I, my brain could tell my foot, go kick the fireplace over and over. And like, and then my brain told my toe, my foot to kick the fireplace. But, but for some reason that path back, the one that has the pain in it, the one that can feel the, the fireplace, if that didn't work, we'd have a major problem because I would hurt my foot. I literally would hurt my foot and not even know it. If that if that feedback doesn't get up to the head, we've got a major unhealthy body, mm. right? And I think the church as an organism is very similar. That if there's stuff from from the center that says, "Hey, you got to do this," but then there's no feedback the other way, there's there's there you've got this awful cycle that's happening. And I think. Maybe criticism isn't the right word, but feedback, healthy feedback is essential for any functioning healthy organism. Mm -hmm. And we in the church are no different. And I think you and I, our spirit is in the right place. We see things that 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 need to be said. Mm -hmm. And um, other people who have done that are excommunicated. And this is where the problem comes in, because excommunication cuts off that other channel that is so necessary for the health of the church, mm-hmm. the, f- the, f- the feedback towards the center. Mm. Uh, and what she's trying to do is is make sure that the church is healthier and that there's um, less domination in the church, less um, abuse of power, 
That's something that everyone should want. That's something that Christ should want. That's someone, anyone who represents Christ should want. Hmm. And that's, that's the Christ I know in the New Testament. Hmm. He never, um, I just don't see that at all being the way he, he runs his church. Totally, totally. We talked about this a little bit. I guess it was two weeks ago we talked uh, about the body of Christ in Corinthians. Every member of the body has a function. Every right. one of them, no matter how inconsequential they may seem, they're all necessary. They all have a job to do, and they're all, like I said, necessary for the function of the right. body of Christ. And cutting those members off or cutting mm-hmm. back that feedback channel is detrimental to the health of the body. So, right. um, And for a secular example... The freedom of the press, basically the freedom to criticize, the freedom of speech, the freedom to criticize our government is really the foundation of all of our other rights. Or, or maybe the, the ability to vote is the foundation of all. But, but the ability to, to criticize your government is essential for any flourishing democracy. Hmm. Like without that, you wouldn't be able to fix things when they go wrong. You wouldn't be able to – it just would be – you wouldn't be able to fix any other problem. Mm. And so that's why I think the freedom of speech and press is the foundation of all our other rights. And I think a, an analogous thing is uh, needs to be in any, like a university or a church or a hospital. If you can't tell the people who can ha- can make decisions mm. what's going on, you're going to have a major problem in any institution. Big time, big time. And another few weeks ago, we had the discussion about what the apostles did when the uh, disciples in Greece had some complaints mm-hmm. about about what to do with their widows. And we can only imagine what would happen if they didn't call those other Greek disciples. You know what I'm saying? Right. We never would have gotten Stephen. We never would have gotten Philip. And he never would right. have converted a eunuch. Stephen would have never converted Paul. You know, yeah. there are th- certain chains of events that probably just would not have happened if the original apostles of the church did not listen to the body of Christ. Right. You know what I'm saying? So my biggest fear is that because of incidents like this or because we just generally ignore voices that need to be heard, that we are stifling the growth of the church mm-hmm. or that mm-hmm. we are preventing great things right. otherwise from happening right. in the church. And, um, you know, I, I'm glad that we have those examples in the New Testament, but, uh, you know, just seeing stuff like this, what happened to Sister Anderson it just frightens me and, you know, it gives me pause when it comes to, I, I suppose, the general growth of the church in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that in the future we are going to have, that things are going to be significantly different. In fact, we've had glimmers of that in the last few weeks, like the uh, uh, abuse prevention program that the church rolled out with just a few weeks ago. So it's uh, it's evidence that part yeah. of that feedback loop right. is working. Right. But you know, still, still a little ways to go. Though there are some glimmers of hope and some spots of progress that we can see. And I just, I don't want to talk too much about this, but this is to me in my head contrasted with what I see almost every week or two on the other end. Basically, we I I hear cases of a Mormon bishop or high priest or someone with with standing in the church who ends up caught in in the abuse of a minor or some other um, uh, sexual predatory thing. I'm like, that's the people we should be excommunicating. Mm. 
right? Big facts. And like, which is, which is, let's really think about the health of the church here and, and protecting, protecting our youth, things like that. That's to me a higher priority than, I don't even know. I don't think that Sister Anderson said anything that, that, uh, you know, here's another problem is you can get this, you know, the, the, what is the, the Barbra Streisand effect? Have you heard of this? No. Can you say more about that? Okay. So Barbra Streisand, this is, this is amazing because the irony is that I've actually heard of the Barbra Streisand effect. So what happened is someone t- went to, you should wic- like Wikipedia I'm doing right it right now. now. So someone. See what this is. Like found a picture of her house, like a basically a pub it was taken from an airplane or a helicopter or a drone or something it, it was a publicly i think it was a legal photograph of her home not on her property it was taken from from the air and posted it on the internet now no one would have heard about this photo except for the fact that barbara filed a lawsuit to make them take down this photo which is the this, this is the the dumbest thing ever because now that you've got a website You've got a news story, and now everyone's going to look at this photo that mm. you're trying to cover up. So the more that you tried to cover up this photo, the more you ended up more, publicizing and, it. Like this has like millions and millions and millions of people yeah. have seen this photo. Yeah, and now there's a th- there's another layer. N- it's not just the people who who saw the news. Now it was it was so prominent that this effect was named after it, and people who otherwise <laughs> wouldn't have heard about this story or the lawsuit have heard of it because there's a thing named after this. That's how I heard about it. <laughs> that makes so much sense. This isn't my and first millions time actually hearing And millions and millions of that. people have seen that the photo, if she would have just not criticized it mm-hmm. and just let it be, it would have been, you know, five people would have seen it. Mm. And there's nothing embarrassing about it. It's not like it's not like a, a private picture or, you know, like that. It's just a picture of her house. <laughs> She's a rich person with a rich house. I don't know. Yeah. So what's, there's nothing embarrassing about her house. So anyway, the caption on this picture, by the way, is hilarious. Image of Barbara Streisand's Malibu house that she attempted to suppress. <laughs> right, and I think this is the. I think the church was different back in the nineties. There was oh, more, definitely there was more effort on suppression. Now, when this Book of Mormon musical comes out, they don't try to say don't go see. They don't tell people. They don't censorship backfires. Mm-hmm. Like if they would have told the world. Please, please, please don't see this. It, it's it's offensive. Everyone's gonna go see it. That's psychology one hundred and one. Right. If the if if the if the if the church tells the public, don't go see this. Everyone's gonna want to know it. what it is they're trying to cover What's up. What's wrong with it? And so that's the back. That's the background of their marketing. I think there there are fewer excommunications like that, and there are fewer condemnations like that of like don't see this or we want to. They're like their response to the musical was like it was took really out actually lighthearted. It. it was like, well, you know this this musical will inter- entertain you for uh, a, an evening, but we've got something that will give you joy for eternity. Or mm. the book is always better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually you know, the ad they, they took, took this out. Lighthearted approach rather than this this which wouldn't have worked anyway. If they tried to sue them, yeah, it would have it would have backfired. Totally, totally. It would have made the church look bad, and it would have made everyone go see. Uh, and I think that's that's really the approach to these excommunicati- these excommunications. I think the church doesn't. I mean, there still are excommunications based on people's ideology or their activism. Yeah, twenty fourteen. But, <laughs> but it's not. 
I don't think there's this cover up of of information, right? The people, you know, that type of thing is is yeah, I don't I don't see that. Mm, agreed. Agreed. I'm going to have to look more into this Streisand effect. That is super interesting. Uh, if there's nothing else on that, do you have any more news, Derek? Nope, that's it for me. All right, sweet. Then let's go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me in Second Corinthians. I believe it's Second Corinthians 1 through 7. Right, yeah. I hope it's 1 through 7 because I got a thing from 7. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to start with something in Second Corinthians 3, 1 through 2. Now, I had a question about these verses simply because Paul's tone seems to be I don't know if sarcastic is the right word, but it seemed to, it was, Paul was clearly asking a rhetorical question here, and he seemed to intend something different with it. You got the Wayman translation there? Right, yeah. All right, cool. Would you mind reading that? Three, one through... Two. Two, Yes. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter of commendation, written upon our hearts to be understood and read by all. Okay, I really like these verses. Now, these verses prompted me to look into what Paul is saying here. And what I found out is that in ancient Mediterranean society, or at least in Paul's time, there was a common practice that if you went into a new city, you brought in letters of commendation with you to let people know Mm -hmm. that you were cool or that you were worthy of whatever title you were claiming. So in Paul's case, he would bring along letters of commendation to let people know that, yes, he is a legit apostle or that he's a good guy or at the very least that he's not an imposter or some kind of troublemaker. That's what you you brought around letters of commendation for. And Paul's just like, do I really need these letters? Right. Yep, that's his point. That's his point. His point is I don't need actual letters of commendation because you know what? You guys are my letters. The word of Christ written on your hearts is my letters. It is pretty much the best endorsement. It is the best commendation I can have is the changed lives of the Corinthians. That is my letter. And that is his whole point. So there's a couple ways to read that maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I just thought it was really beautiful that Paul kind of, you know, tongue in cheek was just like, I don't need letters. Y'all are my letters. And he, right, because remember, he he was responsible for the conversion of a lot of Corinth. Yes, he was. Um, there were others as well, but he was the one that ch- planted that church and nurtured it, and he was there for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Very long time. Yes. Um, so he didn't need any any letters. Right. Yeah. People knew him, and people knew and people knew the changed lives of the Corinthians. Now, um, there's something else to be read into here. Because it also seems to say that the personal conduct of the members of the church seems to be a way to identify disciples of Christ. And the way many will come to know the gospel and judge its truthfulness is going to be through the people. That says a lot about what we should be as members of the church or as disciples of Christ in general. We have a responsibility to have the word of Christ written on our hearts so that we can be for lack of a better word, the church's letters, the church's letters yeah. of con, uh, of commendation. That is a really hard word for me to say. But um, I just thought it was super beautiful how one of the greatest evidences of the truthfulness of the church is the personal conduct of the members of the church. Mm-hmm. Is that That is the best way to know the effect of the church or know the veracity of the church. You know, there's many different ways this is said throughout the Bible and the Book of Mormon, like by their fruits, you should know them and other other such uh, sayings. But uh, 
that that's the one nugget of wisdom I wanted to pull from that was the you know the idea of the people being the letters of commendation for Paul mm-hmm. you know I uh, I've seen that like my life is is really dramatically different I there are people who know me before and after I joined the church and they say that I came alive and and I think that's that's a profound evidence of the reality of of this work and the divinity of this work absolutely absolutely thank you for sharing I'm sad that you didn't know me before (laughs) I can't imagine you any different so hearing that people did say that about you just kind of shocks me I can't really picture you any other way Derek like yeah. This person I see before me, I would imagine that you've always been this compassionate, always been this passionate about scriptures, always been. I don't know what people mean when they say you came alive, Derek. There's a um, a power and a confidence that I didn't have before. Mm. There's a particular, and there's also a particular wisdom that I didn't have before, and a certain, the guidance of the, the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is, is, is a significant factor now in the new the new and improved the new Derek 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 (laughs) 2.0 got it yeah so um all right that's pretty cool and it's very humbling to think about this but I'm just so fortunate to be here yeah I can totally see that the gospel of Jesus Christ would or you know conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ would inspire one with more with more confidence Mm -hmm. and more wisdom I definitely find that as my understanding of the gospel has grown deeper, I have cared less about the things of the world or what other people think of me and have been more concentrating on my path of discipleship to the point where who I am, I discover that who I am is enough for the world out there so long as I'm focused on the right things. So, you know, that's another great thing to pull. And I hate to have to admit this, but there are members of the church who are not converted. Dude, I don't think that's a hard thing to admit. And it's, I think that's a, yeah, I think tough to the contrary, just, it's an important thing to acknowledge. Just look at, there's some pe- members of the church that you look at the priorities, yeah. look at how they treat other people, yeah. look at their, what they think is important and look at what Christ thought was important. It's almost backwards in lists. Definitely. definitely. Let me, ch- let me just uh, tell you a brief story about how I, I was involved in livestock judging back in Texas. Livestock judging, you said? Yes, just livestock judging. Sure. <laughs> Have okay. I told you the story? No, you have not. I'm anxious to hear now. <laughs> I was bad. I was very bad at this. I did not grow up on a farm. There were farms and ranches around me, but I was not a farm boy. Here's how livestock judging worked. You uh, you had the real judges, like the professional real judges. They would look at six steers and rank them one to six. And then you as the contestant, meaning me, And the other contestants, we would go and we would rank the same steers one to six. And somehow they had some type of system that would compare our results to theirs and then see how close we were. And I was bad. I was really bad. Like these other (laughs) kids, they looked at the steers. And you're, you're judging them based on meat, right? These are, this is the beef industry. You have to, to figure out the marbleization of the fat how healthy the the steer is, how much they weigh, um, whether the you know whether this is good, nice, m- fatty, marbleized, lovely, tender muscle tissue. That was way too many adjectives, Derek. <laughs> I know, I know. But thank you for sharing. Speaking of muscle, I'm watching you in your shirt right now. 
Focus, Derek. <laughs> Focus. <laughs> okay, the steers. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> and so what? Ha- I was bad. I was really bad. So what? I I was so bad. What I decided to do was I would rank mine one to six. What I thought was the best steer to the worst, and then I would invert my order and turn them in backwards. And I actually did better. Oh <laughs> I my improved. gosh. Oh my gosh. So it turns out that my priorities were exactly backwards mm-hmm. from what the real judges were. And this is a long way of saying that these members of the church who are not converted, their priorities are are backwards yeah. from Christ's. Definitely. Just like mine were backwards from the, the judges. Yeah. And and they're gonna be shocked on on judgment day because the Lord is gonna say, Well, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. The prophets and the apostles. They're also going to say, you know what? They're not going to recognize, you know, the prophets and apostles are not going to recognize these other people. They're going to say, we're not on your side. Yeah. They're going to throw them under the bus. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. And they're and and these these members are going to be surprised that 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 Christ and the apostles are not not taking their side on Judgment Day. Even though they checked all the boxes and stuff. I regularly go back to that scripture in Matthew 25 where, you know, they talk about, didn't we cast out many devils in your name? And in your name, did we not do these many other things? Mm -hmm. And I see modern day disciples or modern day members of the church saying, we did our home teaching or sorry, ministering. (laughs) We, um, you know, we got married in the temple. We sent our children on missions. I went on a mission. Yes. We checked all the boxes. Mm -hmm. But I remember I went to a ward like that shortly before my own mission. And when I returned, there were multiple divorces, kids that have left the church. You know, this was a ward that had its home teaching percentage in the 90s, you know, in the 90, in the 90 percents, you know, whatever. You know, wow. this was a ward that checked all the boxes, but to see all those changes when I returned, you know, let us know that the priorities weren't quite in the right place. You know, I can see why the metrics were important, and I don't know what the metrics mean for you know, the broader church or for the stake or whatever. But, you know, clearly just focusing on checking the boxes off is not going to be what saves us Mm -hmm. and it's not going to be what matters. So, yeah, that's all I wanted to say about that particular verse. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next thing I want to talk about was in 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, This was actually the first thing I read when I decided my study of Corinthians because godly sorrow is a topic I think about on a regular basis. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 10. And this is the verse that begins, I believe, godly sorrow worketh repentance or says that somewhere in the passage. I don't have it in front of me. But um, I think a lot about this because I wonder a lot what godly sorrow really is. And I like how it says godly sorrow worketh repentance and the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, there could be many ways to read that. I, I, I don't know. But how I'm going, and you know, I, I want your opinion on this later, Derek. But what I, what I hear when I hear the sorrow of the world worketh death, I hear shame. You know, I've been in the trappings of sin before. And I know other people that have been caught in the trappings of, of certain sins. And they feel so ashamed of themselves um, that, that they want to give up on trying to be better. And thus they lead themselves to a spiritual and sometimes physical death. Like godly sorrow doesn't, and it should not make us want to give up on ourselves. It shouldn't want us make us want to give up on life. Godly sorrow, while it does include a mental and spiritual anguish, which, which the scriptures 
tend to call uh, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It should make us want to do better. It should still allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and make us want to be better people and let us know that it's possible because with Christ, that is possible. And with Christ, we can be better. So just in my pondering about what godly sorrow is uh, and how it's not the sorrow of the world, godly sorrow still involves the spirit, even though that anguish is there. And it also allows us to know that while our actions are causing harm and pain to Jesus Christ, we are also made aware that through Jesus Christ, not only can we be forgiven, but we can also be better people. So uh, that was just something I, I, I pondered on mm-hmm. uh, this past week. Just this notion of godly sorrow or primarily the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow or godly sorrow and shame. Basically, that godly sorrow is not shame or rather it should not lead to feelings of shame so severe that we want to give up on being our better selves or give up on life in general. What do you think? Yeah, I think from the context, we can look at the difference having to do with the effect. The effect of godly sorrow is towards repentance. Yes. And Hence, godly sorrow worketh repentance. Yeah. And that's how pa- Paul distinguishes them. One of the things to remember is that we don't have all of the data that we would like. We don't have any of the Corinthians letters to Paul. It looks like we're missing at least one letter. It could be more from Paul to the Corinthians because he talks about this this other very painful letter that he sent them, which doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians. So it looks like he sent 1 Corinthians, then he sent this painful letter, and then uh, that caused them to repent, and then he sent 2 Corinthians. And it looks like there could be a letter um, before 1 Corinthians as well because in 1 Corinthians he mentions a letter that he already wrote. And it was that letter that actually brought them to repentance. And he was, Paul was sad that they, that they felt bad, but, but then he was actually glad that not, not that it stayed there, but the effect was to get them to repent gotcha. and to bring them back into right relationship. Okay. So that's, that's kind of, I think the, the whole point of godly sorrow. Great. Great. And the last thing I wanted to highlight was uh second Corinthians six fourteen. I, I've heard this scripture quoted before, but it was all often quoted in the context of marriage. I'm just going to read this particular, just the first section of this, uh, this verse, second Corinthians six fourteen, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now for context, the law of Moses prohibited the yoking of an ox and an ass together so that the ox wouldn't hurt the ass. And so that the ass wouldn't hold back or keep the ox from doing its, uh, you know, doing its labor. Now, I've heard this scripture used mostly to discourage interfaith marriages, and part of me gets it. Ideally, you don't want to be with somebody who takes issue with how you spend your Sundays, how you pay tithing, how you raise your children, etc., but rather someone who embraces those parts of your identity or at the very least doesn't question them or take issue with them. Now, Paul has already made clear that the most important identity he holds and that anyone else holds in the church is that of a Christian, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And you don't need to be yoked with someone who doesn't embrace that part of you, especially if religious differences are fundamental differences. And Paul saying that mo- your most important identity is that of a Christian would make a difference of faith a fundamental difference, which is why I would assume that people would encourage us not to engage in interfaith marriages or at least a marriage with somebody who is not 
who doesn't share our Christian faith. But uh, I think he is speaking generally here, and it can simply include marriages, perhaps. But we just want to, um, you know, what Paul is alluding to was just relationships in general, that we generally want to associate with people who would embrace our faith with us, who would encourage us to be better people, and who would understand what we what it is we're trying to do with our lives as disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. And you know that that last part of the verse seems to uh seems to share that much, you know. What business does light have to do with darkness and or and I don't remember what the second comparison is, but um the whole point is or seems to be be with somebody who is going to encourage you to be your best self. Like that's what I gain from this particular verse. It doesn't necessarily have to be about marriage, though I understand why people would take it in that context. But, you know, we should be equally yoked in the people that we associate ourselves with, people who appreciate us and people who are willing to work equally with us toward the same goal, I suppose. What do you think? Yeah, so it's hard to tell. So the context isn't about marriage. Right. And the context really isn't about any other kind of partnership in in the world either. So it's hard to – it really looks out of place, which leads some scholars to speculate that this is an interpolation that someone later put this in the text. Uh Uh-huh. But um, I don't think he's limiting it to just marriage. I think it's – it it is hard to figure out what it's doing in that context because it doesn't really flow well. Mm -hmm. The the context more has to do with the differences between the present and the eternal. Like we have a particular hope – that other believers don't have, which changes everything. I think that's more the the context that we're going to than particularly around marriage. Okay. And we, yeah, we are unequally yoked because we have particular restrictions and burdens and labors that we have on us working in the world. And other than that, I don't, I don't see anything more specific that we can prove from the text that Paul's talking about. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's all I got for uh, my come follow me study this week. I am I'm really anxious to hear what you what you got yeah. this week. I've got two things. One okay. is from First Corinthians chapter four. First Corinthians chapter four. Yes. Okay. This is the one. Oh, I need. I want just want to back up and say a little bit about. Um, or Second Corinthians chapter four, rather. Yeah, Second Corinthians chapter four. Okay. Starting with verses, um, let's see, where are we? Oh, starting with verses 7. Okay. Starting with verse 7. I just want to back up and say something about scholarly discussions around Second Corinthians. There is, there's a, some dis- discussion or debate around what we call the unity of this letter. Because what some scholars... Uh, imagine is that Paul may have written a, a number of letters that in the process of got copying got basically copied into one letter and uh, it's difficult to see a parallel but think of the book of Psalms the book of Psalms has a number of different Psalms but they got copied together in a certain order so many times that they now got seen as one book mm. and some people think that in the liturgical process of the early church that because they read these letters together that they then somehow got turned into second corinthians and the the evident there is no evidence behind this other than people hypothesizing that there's different things going on in different sections of the letters it's presupposing a different context it's addressing different things um he has a different tone in in different parts of the letter and there's no way of proving this i'm 
I, I don't really go one way or the other. I would be fine if I wouldn't have my world come apart if it somehow we had proof that, that these were multiple letters stitched together. I basically take them as one, not as a not as a scholar, but just as a as a believer, a reading Christian. That's how I read them. I read them as one letter. So I don't I don't have much evidence one way or the other about that. But I wanted to let people know because it impacts what people look for when they read. Like people know, oh, we should look for, you know, differences in tone or context, things like that. Okay. But all of them are are addressed to the Corinthians. And that's that's kind of the what's unifying them. So let's mm. go back to First Corinthians four. I'm going to read verses seven until eleven. We have this treasure in clay jars to demonstrate that this exceptional power belongs to God and is not from us. We are tried in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always bearing in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in our bodies. For we who are living are always being handed over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So I want to talk to you a little bit about um, so Tom Wright, the, the very famous New Testament scholar, has a story about Sir Oliver Franks, who was the British ambassador to the United States in the 1960s, shortly after. Um, this is not not a good time to be an ambassador. You've got the Cold War going on, right? A lot of, a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. And Tom Wright tells a story that he had a lot of dealings with the prime minister— uh, of the UK and with the President of the United States. He was really in dialogue with both. And there was a problem with keeping communications confidential. Obviously, the Soviets wanted to know everything. Other spies wanted to know everything. And there was no real good way of, of getting uh, getting things across the pond. Uh, so what one thing they did do is have a messenger have a like a this messenger bag this, that they would dispatch every day flying across the plane and hand carry messages from from London to Washington. But you know that that wasn't always foolproof. And it turns out then that when Sir Oliver Franks wanted to send something really 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 important. This is what he did. He put it in a normal envelope and sent it through the regular mail because no one would no one no one bothers to check that right mm-hmm. no one would think that something so precious a message so profound would be in that container mm-hmm. and that's exactly what Paul's doing right here okay that's why he says what we have is a treasure that's in jars of clay it doesn't look pretty it doesn't look strong it doesn't look profound it doesn't look costly but what we have is the most important message in the world it's like uh, the uh, the most important message being sent in the normal mail in a regular envelope and I think that is so interesting because we have to place this in the, the context of what's going on in 2nd Corinthians so th- the thrust of all of this is that Paul was slipping in his authority as an apostle and his uh, credentials were being questioned 
and you can see this as as to how he argues throughout Second Corinthians. He's talking to people who are are doubting. That's why he he talks about these letters of of commendation. It right. could be that someone's expecting those from him, or that other um, super apostles came with better letters of recommendation. Mm. Uh, we see Paul's uh, dispute with these other super apostles in in uh, starting in chapter 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians. So we've got all this going on here, this drama. And that's the background by which Paul defends his authority. But he doesn't actually defend his authority the way some people might. Right. They, he doesn't say, well, I'm an apostle. Get in line. He, does not, he doesn't say that out. He actually goes out of his way to downplay his, his own self. Because what he's doing here when his, his authority is slipping, he's not taking the shortcut. He's not saying, look at me. I'm an apostle. Look at my authority. Look at my calling. Look at all this. He's actually diverting diverting everything to Christ. He's pointing to the message. He's saying, don't look at the envelope. Look at the message. The envelope is going to look funny. It's going to look embarrassing. It's going to look you know, plain, and it's going to look awful or normal. But think about my message. Think about Christ. It's very interesting that they had a problem with the way the message was delivered rather than the message itself. Like, how often do we see that? Yeah. Yeah. We see that all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and that's that's how Paul defends his own authority because he's trying to, in the first, in the basically the first six chapters of First Corinthians, defend his ministry mm-hmm. and defend his, not his apost- apostleship, but defend the message and his mm. ministry. And you'll notice that that Second Corinthians is one of the most rhetorically persuasive of all of Paul's letters. I think it's probably more persuasive than Romans. More, you know, Galatians is really, really powerfully persuasive, and so mm-hmm. is Philemon. Um, but I think Second Corinthians really is the chief of all of them because he he no longer can just say, "Well, I'm an apostle. Get in line. You know, you got to do what I say." He never he never uses that logic. In Second Corinthians, now you'll. What's interesting is when you compare it to Galatians. Galatians, he does actually use his apostolic authority to say something, but it's not to get people to line up under him. He's using his power to leverage and be an ally to the misunderstood and persecuted Gentiles. Right? He mm. starts out in Galatians by saying, "Look, I'm I'm an." Paul, an apostle, not by any human authority, but because I saw the Lord himself. He's the one that called me directly. That's my credential. And he used that not for his benefit. He's not trying to to improve his standing. Mm -hmm. He's in trying to use his authority to improve the standing of those who need it. Mm. Okay, So you've got this backwards thing here in 2 Corinthians where you would think when his authority is slipping— that he would defend it the most, but he doesn't. Mm. He says, look, it's not about me. It's about Christ. And I think this has a lot to do with how we we look at um, human apostles today on the yeah. earth. A lot of people want to focus on the envelope mm. and think about the particular characteristics of that apostle. And like, God could have made apostles out of rocks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. If what that matters is what he is had to work the, with. It, what matters is the message. Mm-hmm. That's the authority of the apostles. Isn't isn't their envelope? There's nothing special about the envelope. And when church members make that the the special thing, they've missed it. What's important is the, the fact that they serve as special witnesses to Christ. Mm-hmm. 
and have a particular role and calling in the world, which is to point to Christ. Yeah. And that's what they do best, and that's what their authority is. Mm-hmm. And I and I just love how that's why why he says in in verse Second uh, Corinthians four verse seven we have this treasure in clay jars. It's in clay jars to demonstrate that this exceptional power belongs to God and is not from us. It looks like the Corinthians were complaining that he wasn't, um, you know, maybe Flashy. he wasn't well educated. <laughs> he didn't come with persuasive words of speech. Maybe he didn't come with miracles to Corinth. Maybe he didn't do all these other things. And he's like, you know what, Corinthians? Stop caring about the envelope. You need to look at the message inside because it will change your life. Hmm. And that's really how, how, uh, how he, quote, defends his ministry. Okay. What do you think about all these things? I really like that. Like just this idea that, first of all, Paul is diverting attention to Christ rather than himself. He's mm-hmm. done this multiple times so far in our reading of the New Testament. He has multiple times said something to the effect of, it's all about Christ. It's not about me. Right. Uh, I re- I'm recalling a few weeks ago when he said, who was it that Apollo or somebody uh, planted? Mm-hmm. Like I watered, but Christ is the one who reaps. What what was it? Or gives the increase? Gives the increase. Yes, yes. makes like, it grow. Makes yeah. it grow. Yeah. So like th- that. That's the that is a general theme of Paul. I feel like we, we we see this in a lot of his you know bigger moments or you know not as big moments. This yeah. is a little gem that's you know kind of hidden in Second Corinthians but you know I'm just thinking of some of my favorite Paul moments from my favorite Paul teachings and he's doing just that much diverting t- attention away from mm-hmm. himself and to God you know yeah. even when he performs that incredible uh gosh no that wasn't Paul let me back up I was thinking of something that happened back in Acts but anyway yeah I, I just really like how um the focus is right where it should be. And what, mm-hmm. what it made me think of spe- uh, specifically in this moment is the reason I'm able to sustain the prophets, even though I don't necessarily always agree with them. And they may not always agree with each other, too. Right. Yeah. In fact, that happens a lot. I remember mm-hmm. in this one discussion, I don't remember who was talking to us or even where it was. Okay, it was my mission president, and apparently he had a meeting, you know, just Mission presidents have a meeting before they go out and serve. But apparently they get into some heated discussions when it comes to policy issues. But by the time they come out, you can't tell who espoused which position when the meeting is Mm -hmm. over. I mean, that's not the point of what I'm trying to get at. But ultimately, the Lord is working within those special witnesses of Christ to do one thing. And that is to bring the message of Christ to the masses. I don't need to agree with them to sustain them. And that is part of the beauty of the church is we are all different people. We all believe different things, but Christ is what unifies us. And so long as the apostles are working and, you know, the president of the church are working to that end, I can sustain them. I don't have to lose my faith over a policy issue because one, my relationship with Christ is secure. And two, their whole effort is directed to the end of recognizing Christ and bringing Christ to the masses. So I just really like that uh, Paul's attention 
is always staying on Christ. It's not in the tone of the message. It's not in the way the message is delivered. It's not in the fanciness or the flashiness of the package. It is focused on the message. And I can't stress enough how important it is in any conversation, but especially conversations surrounding the gospel, to focus on the message and not the packaging, not the tone, not the eloquence of the words being spoken. Right. It has to be on the message. I think there's there's a cultural... A, a real cultural challenge in the church around this because people Big think time. that if there's something that's from an apostle, it's now magically delicious, right? <laughs> that it's yeah. just, that it has more weight or more. Yes. It, it's almost like, like we've heard of this, this idea of royalty. They're not uh-huh. royalty. They're not. They're not. I mean, they're ordinary people that have, that have, that have been, they're just random people. Like any one of us. Mm-hmm. Like the original apostles, yeah. just regular just ran, dudes. Yeah. They got stepped into this responsibility, mm-hmm. yeah, and so uh, so that's why we have to focus not on the envelope but on the message, right? But so many people in the church focus on the envelope, and that, and then it messes things up later. So I want to move on and talk about so Second Corinthians five verse seven. Um, I'll start with uh, verse six. Therefore, we are always confident, even knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord because we walk by faith and not by sight. Mm. Basically, our confidence comes from the fact that we walk by faith and not by sight. Mm-hmm. And let's talk a little bit about about what this means. A, a number of people try to try to read this as as though it were written during the Enlightenment, right? And say that that this is an epistemology of of believing things that aren't true, or I mean, believing things without proof. Yeah. Or yeah. believing things that science says is false, but you just have enough faith to overcome the evidence. That's not what Paul's talking about. Right. That's not that's not what he's addressing. What he's addressing in context is the fact that this present life, we don't see the the ultimate glory of our bodies. Mm-hmm. We don't see the value and potential of our bodies and uh, uh, of us as people. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's trying to say here is that the infinite worth, value, dignity, and potential of every being is what we know by faith and not by sight. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And bar, this, whole bar. <laughs> and this has to do with the value of marginalized peoples because our our value isn't known by sight for a number of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people refuse to recognize us, and it's going to take them a leap of faith to accept our dignity. Mm. So it's on them to, to see what Paul's talking about. And this is another case of, of something, of, of a treasure in clay jars mm. that, that I think is, is so profound. Um, and so people are going to try to use this out of context to say, oh, faith means believing stuff that's not true, believing stuff in spite of the evidence. That's not what this is about. No, what this not. is— is actually practical. It's saying, look, I can make it from day to day. Look at all the, we we look in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 12, where he lists all of the things that he had to endure, beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and all these other things. Mm-hmm. That's the, the reason why Paul is able to make it from day to day is because of this. He knows the glory of the resurrection is there, though he's, though he's never... Um, seen the future obviously he's seen jesus the resurrected jesus mm-hmm. but he has not seen what he will become 
Yeah. And I think that is the type of faith that queer people have in the church. I stepped into this church not because of where it was or what it looked like, but where I know it's going. Yeah. Right? I walk yeah. by faith and not by sight. That's why no one really who actually knows me in person ever questions my loyalty. I've never had one person in, that knows me in real life ever yeah. question my loyalty or dedication to this gospel because I joined this church December 5th, 2015, one month after the policy, the policy that is no longer here, but I'm still here. No longer here. <laughs> now that takes faith. Yes, it does. Because I saw more in this church than almost anyone else did. Mm-hmm. At the time. Yep. I decided to walk by faith and by sight. And not only that, I am following the standards of the church, even the standards that are currently uh, currently proclaimed by by the leaders of the church. I'm following them. What more do people want? You know, no one has ever accused me of being disloyal to the to the apostles or the prophet. They can't do it. Right. I am living my life in alignment with what they're teaching, mm -hmm. even at great sacrifice. Mm -hmm. How dare people say that I am not loyal? Mm -hmm. It's only people on the internet that don't know me. Only people on the internet. Y'all, y'all really wildin' on the internet, man. Y'all really wildin'. Y'all don't yeah. know Derek. Yeah, right. Um, y'all the worst. Let me just back up and say, my stake president, my bishop, they love me. They support me. They know where I'm coming from. They under I don't know if they agree with everything I say. Probably doesn't matter. Not. But they they love the fact that I'm here offering my gifts to the church when I didn't have to. Right. Right. Like no one made me join this church. I chose to be here. Mhm. Mm and I don't think people we're going to talk about this later. But I didn't have to be here. I'm not actually hurt. Like I'm not coming from a place of pain or a place of hurt. If that mm -hmm. were the case, I never would have joined the church. Right. I had an option. You wouldn't be here. None, none, none of, I don't think I've ever said in my three and a half years that the church has hurt me. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I've never said that. It hasn't. Right. Let me just be clear. I am not coming from a place of pain or hurt. Mm -hmm. Now, some LGBT people are. Right. right. But that's right. them. Right. And that's valid. And where was I going with this? I was talking about, <laughs> about loyalty. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. My point is that I had faith uh, that that actually stepped beyond sight. Yeah, and I think that should be should be given some credit. And let me talk to you about about the people that know me in real life. Yes, let me. The best honor in the church that I've ever had wasn't being ordained an elder, wasn't being baptized, it wasn't um, being endowed either. The greatest honor I've had in the church is when people in my ward who know me. Ask me to stand in the circle to ordain their son hmm. or to stand in the circle to bless their baby. Mm. Because like all these other things, all these other milestones, those are kind of almost automatic, culturally automatic. Right. But these things are not automatic. Out of all the people they could have picked, the limited number to stand in the circle is mostly family, mm -hmm. a few friends they've had like all their life. Yeah. And then me, a church member that they've known for like less than four years. Mm -hmm. Someone who's publicly gay, standing up there in the circle. That's what they want to ordain and 
and bless their children. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest honor I've ever seen because that is real. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying, all these people here out on on the internet that don't know me, these are the people that know me and love me, and that's that's the honor that I get from them. Is that all for uh, Second Corinthians? Yeah, that's all. Just remember, we've got some some treasure in clay jars. It's not going to look good. It's not going to look pretty flashy, but uh, that's who we are. That is who we are. That's actually a great segue into what I'm going to talk about for the prayer roll. Now, first off, let me just begin this by saying, I think Beyond the Block has made it because we finally got a one-star review on iTunes. And uh, I am equal parts ecstatic and equal parts kind of annoyed by that because, you know, it's a big deal. First of all... It is. There's opposition in all things. Yes. Opposition no, Satan, in all things. You know, <laughs> Satan needs to fight back. And, and like, it, we wouldn't be doing <laughs> the Lord's work if we didn't get something from Satan. For real. Like... I wouldn't feel like I'm doing anything impactful if we didn't start getting some negative reviews on the podcast. Now, on the one hand, people may already think negatively about it, but just don't think we're worth the time to put a review on iTunes. But then there are people, y'all folks that like to be up on Yelp, tattling on folks who are going to be on our iTunes, you know, gassing us up. And we really do appreciate that. Thank you for those of you who have taken the time to give us a five-star review. And another thank you to those of you who've taken the time to not only give us a five-star review, but also to write a review of what you Mm -hmm. like about the podcast and how uh, impactful it has been uh, to your gospel study or to your life in general. Right. That really makes it all the worthwhile. So first of all, let me just put that out there as a big thank you to those of you guys who have supported us in that particular way. It's, it means the world. And thank you because people who are deciding whether or not to listen to the podcast, they're going to read those reviews. Yeah. And, and so think about that. Um, Talk about how it impacted your life and what you get out of it, and that will help uh, the people who want to listen to it find us. Yeah, big time. And, you know, further, these reviews on iTunes really help us get discovered. Um, So, you know, the more ratings and reviews that we get, positive ones that we get, uh, the further up the the, uh, iTunes podcast charts we go up so that more people can discover us. Obviously, word of mouth is still the best way for us to get around within our own communities. In fact, uh, the biggest way we seem to be uh, moving across, I guess, the Mormon blogosphere or whatever it is, seems to be word of mouth. So uh, keep doing that, obviously, but the reviews do help in uh, getting us out to a, to a larger audience. So anyway, like I said, we finally got a one-star review from a user who identifies themselves as, quote, Lumpy Wheels, Lumpy capital Wheels. L, capital W. Um. Now, because it's a one-star review and this person took the time to go ahead and describe why they gave us a one-star, I expected a lot of belligerence in this review. But there wasn't any belligerence in this review. I expected maybe some bad words, maybe some unkind words, maybe a little bit of denigration of some kind. There wasn't any of that in here. In fact, given the words of the review, I would have expected at least a three-star review. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was mostly positive stuff they had. Mostly positive stuff, like half of it, more than half of it. Stuff that they recognized, like substantive credit to us. Yes, and uh, we do appreciate that, and we do want to acknowledge it. Uh, However... Um, and you know, I want to put this out there. I I get why people wouldn't like the podcast. I don't think we put out bad content, but I know our podcast is not for everybody yet. I do believe our podcast is for everybody eventually, but not everybody yet. 
You know, some people aren't necessarily ready to hear what we have to share on this podcast. And we also share some pretty strong opinions and have some pretty strong stances on hot button topics. Yeah, So, so did Paul. And so did Paul. Put that out there, yes. So I would get people not really taking a liking to the podcast immediately. Like, that makes that makes sense to me. However, however, if you are going to make time to tell us why you don't like the podcast, I need you to make it make sense to me. Like, I need you to give me, if you're going to give me a reason, just make sure it makes sense. Make sure it holds some water. And Mr. Lumpy Wheels, I'm assuming you're a guy. I'll get to that later. But uh, you decide to share why you gave us such a low low rating. And, and the reasons are about as disingenuous as they are fallacious. So let me just, you know, read this review to you. Um, first sentence. I really appreciate the invaluable perspectives of these two brothers. Pause. That's positive. But I also yeah, feel like that's worth at least two stars. <laughs> yeah, for real. Invaluable. Why we get one star? Invaluable perspectives. Invaluable. You realize that we are necessary in this sphere, but you still gave us one star. So I'm already off the rip, assuming that you're lying, because you know, just how are you going to appreciate what we have to say and then rate us as if we're doing a gross disservice to somebody by merely existing as a podcast, by merely existing as a show? Like I don't know where you're going, going there, but. Um, Anyway, we'll pick up where we left off here in the uh, in the review. I like Brother Knox's deep historical and contextual knowledge of the scriptures. Shout out to Brother Knox. I want to say something about that, though. Yes. Because that's not an accident. Of course it's not. Derek, you've been doing this for a long time. No, but that's that. not just that. But we have to... What I want to say is, is really profound because the, the things that he likes about me are inseparable. Inseparable from the things he doesn't like about me. Ooh. Because speak on it. Because here's the thing: I the reason, part of the reason why I had to do this is survival. There's no way a queer person can survive in this church without knowing the sources better than anyone who will use them against me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like maybe if I weren't gay, I would find some other career. Right? I would have been a musician or something. <laughs> Derek just gestured at right. me. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I could have done something like really cool and really fun and really flashy. But the fact that for for years people have used the scriptures against my people means that I have to say something even to just survive, to thrive and to thrive in this church. The fact that that I'm I I hate to say forced because I I joyfully study the scriptures. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I'm forced into knowing the scriptures better than almost, I hate to say, better than almost anyone I know. Um, <laughs> but you kind of do. <laughs> is is not, you can't separate the from the fact that I come from this, I come at this from, from the perspective of a gay person, right? And that's the part he doesn't like. He's like, oh, I love your knowledge of the scriptures, but I don't like the gay part. Well, that's, it's a package deal. Yeah, you, you don't get, get one. You don't get one without the other. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, and the fact that I'm gay means that I see things in the scripture that are already there that no one thought to look and no Speak one on asked. It. Yes. Yes, Derek. No one asked those questions. You listening, and Lumpy. I did. Because, and so the things that he liked about me is, is inseparable from the things that he doesn't like me, which is the queer perspective. Uh-huh. I just had to say that. No, thank you for saying that. 
He goes on. It is clear that both hosts harbor deep feelings of hurt or perhaps even resentment regarding perceived or real oppression by policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and seek to bring awareness to these issues and perspectives. Pause. Yeah, I'm not I'm not hurt. I am I am not Yeah, I'm not hurt. I'm not resentful. I don't know where that's coming from. I'm really not. No, just because we say things that are critical or less than stellar about the church or its policies means that we must be hurt by the church. Like, I'm not going to say that I'm not hurt. I might be. I haven't gone to therapy yet, so I haven't been able to say, has the church hurt me in some way? But the church has definitely affected me in a strong enough way that I feel like I have to speak on behalf of my people and other people that are on the margins of society. I wouldn't say that's hurt. I feel like there's this sense of almost divine righteous indignation in me that burns mm-hmm. for a desire for justice for my marginalized brothers and sisters. It's love your neighbor. That's what it is. It love is literally neighbor. the first and second great to. commandment. I've made a covenant to do what I'm doing. Exactly. Yeah. I'm and it keeping hurts. my covenants. And what does hurt me is when I see that my brothers and sisters who, when, when I am able to partake of blessings that I view as my birthright, but my brothers and sisters who love in a different way than, than I do are not able to enjoy those same blessings simply because of their orientation, that affects me deeply. When I see black people in the church who don't feel like they have a place for them because they don't see a lot of people that look like them or they hear people that aren't mm-hmm. prepared to minister to them, that bothers me. And I, it's supposed to bother me. Like, that is what the second great commandment right. demands. If I love my brothers and sisters, I am working earnestly to make sure that they don't experience that. Like, that is what mm-hmm. that is. That is me loving my neighbor. You know, that's, right. that's what and, I'm saying. And when we speak out about um, the treatment of women in the church or people with disabilities or mm-hmm. um, immigrants or any other members of the church in other countries, that's not coming from a place of personal pain at all. This is coming yeah. from a place of, I'm doing what Christ did. Yes, it is what I'm Christ doing what would Paul do. Paul did. Yes, big facts. Yeah, and and another thing about this, like after reading perceived or real oppression, <laughs> like I know this much about you, Mister Lumpy Wheels. You're straight. You're white. You're male, and you've probably been a member most of your life, if not all of your life. Who says perceived or real oppression? And is not does not espouse at least one of those identities. Like, do you really think there's a possibility we're making this ish up? Like, in a church that was for 20, 126 years functionally racist and is currently functionally homophobic, you think we would be making this up? Like, the most likely person who would have the audacity, the audacity to suggest to someone on the margins that their oppression is perceived in the face of this f- functionally homophobic and formerly racist church is probably a straight white male. Probably a straight white male. So I'm just going to assume that about you, Lumpy Wheels, from here on. Now, I personally don't resent the church. Uh, and resentment is not a healthy emotion. Like, this is this is not a righteous indignation. It's a bitter indignation. So I don't I don't bear any resentment of the church, like no, I, I said, either. because that's... I again, wouldn't be here. I, right. I There isn't anything about the church that I know now that I didn't know before I got baptized, right? And, right. I, I could have, I don't have to be here. I didn't you have don't. to join the church. You chose to be here. Yeah. And I'm still choosing to be here. Like, I love the church. I have a good relationship with the church. I don't have resentment or I don't harbor any ill feelings uh, toward the church. Now, that doesn't mean 
I can't be critical of it because I love the church. On the contrary, I must be critical of it, especially if the institution is denying blessings to people on the basis of race or sexuality. I'm righteously indignant and I have a right to be. What the church is doing is doctrinally and by extension morally indefensible. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. Uh, continuing on in the review, quote, I am glad that these feelings are being voiced and shared, though the hostility that sometimes accompanies those expressions are perhaps counterproductive to the aims the hosts seek to achieve. Pause. Okay, M Mr. Lumpy Wheels, what do you think we're doing here? What, what, what do you think we're about here at Beyond the Block? Now, Derek and I aren't doing anything but broadcasting conversations that we have already been having on a regular basis anyway, and because we feel like voices like ours you know, those of less conventional members in the demographic or thought pattern, we feel like those voices aren't heard very often. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and why do we want our voices heard? Because we want more consideration to be given to people that look like us, think like us, love like us. We want others on the margins of, of traditional uh, church culture, you know, whether that be ethnic minorities, uh, LGBTQs, um, Less actives, inactive, mm -hmm. singles, other non-traditional members, and more. Like we, I, I want those like me, yeah. whether they look like me or think like me, to know that they have a place here. And Lumpy, yeah. I want people to, I want people like you to know that those individuals have a place here too. Yeah. Like that is why I want people like you to listen because you need to understand that people who don't look like you, think like you, love like you, you need to know that they have a place here. That is. The primary reason I would want somebody yeah. like you to listen to this podcast, and I'm glad that you do. I'm remember, really, you know, yes. women are 50% of the church. Yes. Yeah. It's like, it, I, it, that's something to, to take into account. Like, people ask, well, they'll, they'll say, well, queer people, you're only 2 to 3, 5% of the church. Why, why should we move it, rock the boat for you? Women are 50% of the church, 50% mm -hmm. of the talent of this church. Yes. Right now, our, we're being led by 50% of the talent of this church because mm -hmm. we exclude women from, from almost every leadership position. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder what the church would look like if we run on the full talent of this church. Big time. Everything that we all have to offer, if that's at the table, what would we be like? I just want to add that in there because um, he says, I am glad that these feelings are being voiced and shared, which makes no sense because he gave us one star for doing exactly what he said that he's glad we're doing. Make it make sense, Lumpy. We make it make sense. These feelings, he says, I'm glad that these are and I don't I actually don't see myself as as being hostile hostile. No. Right? I I, I am very faith promoting. Hostility implies some kind of enmity. Like, I love the, the church. church. I'm I'm supporting the church. I want more people in the church. Yes. That's my my only hostility is to Satan. Yep. And um to uh, and <laughs> have to cut this out of the can do that i can do yeah. that <laughs> no worries no worries okay. but like um and you know i don't want to diminish the struggle of the five percent either derek because you know i've said right. this on the show many times before uh when referring to the parable of the lost sheep right. every every 1%. sheep is important you know every sheep is important and the flock is not complete or safe without the lost sheep if that's the 1% or the 5%, everybody needs to be there in order for the flock to be complete and for the flock to be safe. So even if it is just 5%, right. we got to speak to that as well. What's really, what's really going on here is on the analogy of, or probably is, 
white fragility and straight fragility. Oh, certainly. Because discussions like this are intolerable to people in the dominant demographic. Totally. Like uh, white people have been socialized not to have not to be able to tolerate difficult conversations about race. They've been socialized to believe that things are made for them. And when something threatens that paradigm, then, you know, they're not conditioned to handle that kind of stress. That's what white fragility, straight fragility is. It's just this acknowledgement that you are not prepared to deal with a world that perhaps wasn't necessarily built for you. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh gosh, just, just going along with that. Um, like, like I said, I, I want people to, I want people like you to know that those individuals have a place here because it may be people like you that make people like me feel like we can't come back to church or that we can't serve people at church or anyone mm-hmm. for that matter, or come off as hostile, like, or that we're not valued, uh, or worthy in some form or fashion. Now, if that comes off as hostile, Please understand that the hostility toward a status quo that occasionally acts as a stumbling block to certain people, both in and out of the church, that is a real thing. People like us may be the new normal. We may not be. But at the very least, we are necessary. And you need to start embracing that lest you be a stumbling block for an otherwise willing soul. We literally just talked about this two episodes ago when we spoke about the body of mm-hmm. Christ. So, so maybe instead of worrying about the tone with which we call out institutional imperfections, you worry more about caring for the body of Christ. You worry more about making this a more hospitable place for all parts of the body Mm -hmm. of Christ. Because especially as a straight white male, with what I assume to be a traditional view of the gospel, it it is really, really not your place to police the tone of a black man and a gay man. You admitted yourself that it's not what we say, but how we say it that has you bothered. And that sounds like a lot more of a you problem than an us problem. Moving on. My, okay, next part of this review. Quote, my primary concern about this podcast is the lack of acknowledgement of ongoing revelation given through the prophets and apostles who lead the church. Pause again. Now, you've already cited that Derek and I are, are believing members. We, mm-hmm. we, we have said on this show that we both have temple recommends, and I personally talked about my experience as a temple worker. I work in the temple both as an ordinance worker and a baptistry coordinator now. Do you know the questions you have to answer on the temple recommend interview? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Don't you know you have to have a testimony of the president of the church, whoever that is, President Nelson? or whoever the prophet is, yet you have to have a testimony that they do lead the church by modern day, by prophetic revelation, and that they receive revelation on behalf of the entire Mm -hmm. church. We shouldn't have to acknowledge that when our very being here already does it for us. Derek and I are still faithful members of this church despite being marginalized, and we do not have to be here. We've said that multiple times this episode already. The very fact that we are here and that we are temple recommend holding, card-carrying members of the church should be enough of an enough of an acknowledgement that we accept this part of our faith of of our faith's tradition that the church is led by modern day revelation now that said derek and i they could kick us out of the church tomorrow and we'd both still be coming every sunday just like sister anderson because our testimony is in christ and his gospel 
Secondly, we've implicitly acknowledged this in other ways when we talk about our desire for change. We know that the canon of Scripture is open. We know that the heavens are right. open and that God can continue to speak to us. If he couldn't, Derek and I might not be here. Because if things aren't supposed right. to get better for the people on the margins in the church, then what purpose do we have here? If things aren't designed to change, Derek and I have no business being here. So the very fact that we are here is an is open acknowledgement of an open canon, of an open heaven, so that things may be better for us. We know that there is yeah. a prophet, and we know that he does speak on behalf of God, and that he can make uh, give us more revelation that will make things that will make our place in the plan of salvation more clear. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the word revelation. It's yes. a translation of the word, the Greek word apokalypsis, which really okay. means to take the the covering off of something. You know, um, calypto means to to cover up, and to take the covering off is is apokalypsis. Okay. And what it is 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 there something that's already there that you are revealing it, okay. in latin revelatio is to take the veil off of something so you've got something that is really it's an uncloseting by the way you're taking something it's an that's uncloseting all, it's an uncloseting <laughs> gotcha so what what a revelation is is it's like a breakthrough it's something that adds more knowledge that really profoundly um I'm thinking of a great example of the revelation is the one on baptism and salvation for the dead. Like that is a breakthrough. It's something that yeah. was that people did not realize. And then you've got this new light and knowledge in the world. Mm. Okay. Now there hasn't been anything like that around gay people. No, there is not. There has not been any, what we've had. Let's look. There's been no breakthroughs. Even, even if uh, from the other side, there hasn't been any additional knowledge like the rest of the American culture so it thinks gay sex is wrong and, and gay marriage is wrong. I mean, that's how it's been, right? There isn't anything new. There's no breakthrough. There's no sudden light that, that, that broke into the world from our prophets and apostles. We've just inherited the rest of what's swimming in our culture here. And this has not even been substantively changed by any revelation that the prophet has had in this dispensation. Mm-hmm. So let so let's think about it that way. It's yeah. not that I'm saying that um, you know that 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 the apostles are wrong, right? Yeah. It's, it's more that I'm saying that our, our understanding of this is incomplete. It's dark, yeah. Right? See through a glass darkly. And and there's room for breakthrough. Now here here's here's my example. He see he says, well, why why don't we? Um, how does he phrase it? I can't remember now. Um, why don't we recognize? Uh, basically revelation and well here's the question that i have to ask you for basically since the 60s and 70s to the present they've basically had no um positive advancing revelation even giving us more knowledge Mm -hmm. people already under thought that gay sex and gay marriage was wrong that's not news that's not revelation what would have been a breakthrough revelation would be something that tells gay people not what we shouldn't do but what we should do instead. Yes, sir. For example, um, what he's talking about as revelation probably were things like the two things that they say gay people shouldn't do. No gay sex, no gay marriage. Other than that, we haven't had any consistent knowledge or revelation or even claims of revelation as to what gay people should do. Mm-hmm. For example, if he had – if he if – he, uh, in an alternate world, suppose, you know, a few years ago we had a new revelation 
that said gay people should be celibate, right? Mm -hmm. Theoretically, that could have happened. That at least would have been that would have been a revelation. It would have been progress. It would have it would have been new knowledge in the world. It would have been something that we didn't know because right, right now, officially, we don't know as we a don't. church what gay people should do. We don't. We know as a church what gay people shouldn't do. That's gay sex and gay marriage. But we don't have any revelation that says what gay people should do, whether mm -hmm. it's marry a woman, marry a man, stay celibate. We don't have that. We don't have we don't any have anything. revelation. We don't have anything. We don't have any breakthrough light from heaven that answers that question, mm -hmm. right? Now, if there had been, like maybe it says be celibate or maybe it says marry woman, if we had that revelation from heaven, I would pray about it and I would probably follow it. But we don't have that, okay? So why is he saying... Um, I don't even get where he's talking about this because it's it's not about whether it's been canonized or not because we don't have any uncanonized revelation about what we should do. We just have things like the proclamation and other statements that say what we shouldn't do. Bunch of that things. Is not, that is not knowledge. That is not knowledge. That it's is not even not, doctrine. That is, I mean, it, it's not... It, it doesn't advance. It's it's not this uncovering. It's not this breakthrough that 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 is you know finds a foothold in this world and mm -hmm. shakes it up yeah. and gives us new knowledge and light that we wouldn't have had all already long. Mm -hmm. We've had all along this this idea of uh, in our American culture that, and I think there's an analogy with racism too. The 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 1852 uh, statement by Brigham Young that restricted. Uh, men of African descent from the priesthood, that wasn't based on revelation. No, it was not. It was not. We have no n no, no revelation. So how – it would be like asking someone before 1978, why aren't you supporting the revelation that's behind this ban? There was none, mm -hmm. right? There's There was none. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. Like if there were more revelations, I would support them. Right. We just don't have any. We don't have any. Moving on to the next part of this review. Of course, to anyone who does not believe the, the veracity of the church's claims to prophetic leadership, this is a moot point. But to believing members of this church, as brothers Jones and Knox are, it is disingenuous to pretend that the church has no doctrine regarding, for example, same-sex marriage. Pause. Okay, you've already talked a little bit about this. We've explained multiple times on the show why this is the case, why we believe as we do. But, you know, we'll read on since he does actually acknowledge this and what he says next. Dismissing modern revelation as non-doctrinal simply because it has not been canonized, which seems to be a common fallback for the host, fails to account for what the canonized scriptures themselves say. See, for example, DNC 68.4, Doctrine and Covenants 107. Demonstrates lack of understanding of doctrine and scriptures and attempts to diminish the authenticity and authority of prophets and apostles. Pause for a moment. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, for, 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 first of all, the church's literal definition of doctrine is found on the church's website, and it's found in DNC 28. Like, this lays out the law of common consent. The law of common consent is how our doctrine is established, and it is as follows. The first presidency has to approve it, then the Quorum of the Twelve has to approve it, and then the people have to approve it. It's a three-step process. This is how it has always mm -hmm. worked. This is how it's worked since the beginning of the church, and this has only happened six times in the church's history, the most recent being the 1978 revelation that eventually became Official Declaration 2 that would allow the temple and priesthood blessings to be extended to black people. 
Further, everything that has gone through this process, it is in our quads. And therefore, the church's doctrine is found only in our scriptures. Now, I do want to acknowledge this scripture that you cited because it is important. DNC 68.4 is one of my favorite for having this conversation. But it does beg a very important question, which and we will get to. it doesn't say what people think it says. It doesn't say what people think it says. I'm going to get there, Derek. Trust me. I'm going to get there. So let's just read the, read the verse. This is uh, Doctrine and Covenants 68.4. And, and in the context, by the way, this is to uh, four elders of the church who are about to go serve missions. This is given directly to them. But it does say, it does say in the uh, heading to this section that, can, that there are parts of, uh, that a lot of this particular section of the Doctrine and Covenants can be extended to the whole of the church. So we'll just go ahead and read it. Right. I want to also add that this was given in 1831, before there was a first presidency, before there was a quorum of the Twelve. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Derek. Powerful bit of information there. And whatsoever they shall speak, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. Now, I think the part he wants us to focus on is that whatsoever the saints, whatsoever the elders shall speak, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, shall be Scripture, is the trump card to what I've been saying about doctrine. But the Scripture does not mean what you think it means, as Derek has already said. What's interesting about this scripture is President Joseph F. Smith actually used this scripture as a caveat to debunk such an idea. When talking about the role of a prophet in establishing the doctrine of the church, a lot of people like to cite DNC 21.5 or DNC section 1 verse 38 to say that whatever the prophet says is doctrine. But then Joseph F. Smith added a caveat and used DNC section 68.4 to explain that caveat, that only that which the prophet says when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be the word of God. But that begs the question, how do the rest of us know when the prophet is speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost? Now the answer has been repeated by prophets like Brigham Young, Hubie, okay, Hubie Brown wasn't a prophet, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's in the scriptures. And the answer is basically, we know if a prophet is speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost, by the power of the Holy Ghost, via personal yes. revelation. Bearing that is witness how we know. to us. Bearing is, witness yes. to us. Now, in other words, unless God tells me that you're speaking for him, I don't have to listen to you as if you are speaking for God. We don't want blind obedience. Like, the prophets don't want blind obedience. They've been discouraging that since the beginning of time. And as recently as Elder Uchtdorf in one of his talks, we don't want blind obedience. Now, let me tell you, Lumpy, the first 48 hours after the November 5th, 2015 policy change, I spent 20 of those hours locked in prayer, meditation, and study, trying to seek a witness that this policy was from God. And that witness never came, actually. Mm -hmm. It never did come. But over time, I did learn the difference between doctrine and social policy, and I did receive peace that at the very least, my indignation was valid. You know, I did get at least that witness over time. So... The church doesn't seem, when I, when I learned the difference between doctrine and policy, I also learned that the church doesn't seem to have any doctrinal and therefore moral ground to have policy that denies gay folks the Lord's promised blessings on the basis of their sexuality alone. And we cover why we believe this at length in our episode called uh, The Longest Clobber Passage. So if you are interested in that and you didn't get a chance to uh, listen to that episode, definitely encourage you to do that because, again, we go over why we believe as we do at length in that particular episode. Now, you don't have to agree with our conclusions, but you, you do have to acknowledge that even by the church's own definition, the church's own definition of doctrine, the current policies affecting the queer folks in the church 
are not doctrine and by extension morally and doctrinally unfounded so there's that yeah i want to say that that james has a little bit of a different structure around this than i am because i don't worry too much about whether something is doctrine or not doctrine is just a word it's a latin word that means teachings Mm -hmm. okay we can talk about you know the teachings of of buddha or the teachings of muhammad or the teachings of whatever but for some for some reason when people use the word doctrine which is 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 no no more special than teachings for some reason it has some weight to it like it's somehow because like doctrine by the church's definition is that which is binding on the church like people try to use doctrine as if something is a particular teaching is binding and that's what doctrine means in the church by definition now functionally there's no difference between doctrine and policy which is a an important thing to note but doctrine is typically what is a word that's supposed to be used on that which is binding on the church. So rather than like disputing whether something is doctrine or not, I, I am much more comfortable saying, well, it's all our teachings. Some of it is going to prove to be incomplete. Some of it's going to be proved to be um, misunderstood. Some of it's going to prove to be um, just something that we have absorbed from the culture around us there will be a, a process of time and a process of witness by the Holy ghost that will sift out our teachings, which of those will last and which won't. Some of them will last. Some of them won't, whether it's doctrine or not. People later will say, Oh, that will never was doctrine. But at the time, well, people thought it was the teachings of the church and the teachings of the church can change. Or they thought it was binding. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I, rather than say, we don't have any doctrine around these things. I would say, well, we do have teachings. We do have teachings, but, but they're not binding. That but, is what I would say. But we don't know yet how it will turn out. And um, and we shouldn't assume that we do simply because that is all we know. And part of and part of the whole point is we can never say that we have a final, our doctrine finalized. We do not have any finalized doctrine. If you want to have finalized doctrine, go be a Catholic. Mm-hmm. They've, they've actually got it finalized. Yep. Right, you can look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and they have it all—they have it all outlined for you. We don't have any book that's equivalent to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We have these spontaneous eruptions of glory and beauty into the world that we haven't made a system out of. Mm. Right, and that's that's hard work. It's not going to be easy, but but most of what God is saying is to a local occasion a specific circumstance that's why i wish people knew the scriptures better Hmm. then you would understand that that you can't take anything out of context or absolutely in a certain way that that makes it somehow timeless truth without any regard for its historical circumstances or the the biases or or opinions that formed it and um so that's kind of my approach to doctrine Mm mm-hmm um, and also DNC 107. I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about, but DNC 107 is famously <laughs> the one. The Derek one, just threw his phone down as if to say, I'm not even going to bother with this. <laughs> no, it's because I, I just don't need to, to look at the rest of it right now to say what I'm going to say because I need this hand gesture, right? Yeah. Okay. So DNC 107 is the one that says we can hold the president of the church accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, if if the if the president of the church commits a sin worthy of excommunication, we can call the common council of the church 
and remove remove that the president of the church. No one. It's DNC 107 is very clear about this. No one is above the law, not the president of the church. The mm-hmm. president of the church, everyone in the church is accountable. We've had people in the first presidency excommunicated. Yep. We've had apostles excommunicated. Mm-hmm. We've had um, 70s excommunicated mm-hmm. uh, for apostasy in, in all these cases. Yep. There's no level of the church that you are somehow magically immune from apostasy. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not accusing our prophet of apostasy right now, mm-hmm. but what I'm saying is we shouldn't look at the envelope and think that there's anything magically special about that envelope. I knew we'd come back. I knew we'd come back to the envelope. Now, you've got a really nice envelope, I should just say. Thank you, Derek. Derek, yeah. stay on these compliments, man. <laughs> Do me yeah. favors. So, yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. Derek just flexed. Keep up the good work. Y'all can't yeah. see. But anyway, so anyway. let's back go back to this. I think people here are not are coming out of a place of significant insecurity. They n- desperately need something to cling to, and they cling to the envelope of oh, all I gotta do is just follow what the prophet says this week, and don't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. And that's not the way to become a celestial adult with maturity and responsibility and initiative. Someone who's going to create worlds one day. Yep. If all uh, if. If you can't go beyond like this week's instructions, there's no way that you can handle the responsibility of kings, kingdoms, dominions, and powers. Oof. Ooh. What timestamp is that? That's a bar. Great stuff. Yeah. Ooh. So let's talk about this. Um, he's coming from a standpoint. Now, here's the other thing is I think what he's – we have instead of talking about what this impact is on us, because that actually doesn't really. Matter. I'm not even worried about us. I, I'm, I'm not worried about us at all, and I was going to get to that. It's really about him and what needs he's meeting by pressing that one star button. Because I'm sure he got some jolt of fun chemicals in his head. What are you doing for you, Lumpy? What are you because doing for he, you? He needs to say he needs to take a stand. He probably feels good for taking a stand. Yeah, I'm like. The, the prophets and apostles that you think you're defending today on judgment day, they're going to look at you and say, look, that's not what we needed. And um, we don't even know you. We don't recognize you. <laughs> they're going to throw you under the bus and you're going to say, well, I was following I you. <laughs> and they're going to say, look, we knew in part and we prophesied in part. Yep. And now we know yep. that the fullness is, has come. I love what Bruce McConkie said. I was about to bring that up. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you say it. I was just going to say, Bruce R. McConkie. And, you know, when the policy originally came out, I cited this. But uh, Bruce R. McConkie talked about how – I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but he said – He threw himself under he, the bus. He threw himself and all the brethren under the bus. Forget what I or what Brother Brigham or Brother Kimball had said with regard to the Negro. Like that, he didn't use that word, but – he said, we spoke with a limited light knowledge at that time. Forget everything that we said. We, and I forgot the rest of the quote, yeah. but he basically said. Now there's said, further light and knowledge in the world. There's further light and knowledge. So and forget everything. So get everything. behind a believing, you know, get behind a living prophet. Yes. He basically, in that statement, repudiated everything that was ever said about black people in the church in that singular statement. Did it frankly, and he owned it. Like, I love it so much. But. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Going back to what Derek was saying about what is this doing for you, I worry about people like you, Lumpy. I really do. Like, you, you, you guys. It's a fragile faith that can fall apart because the moment he finds something that he disagrees with, that the prophet did, 
it's going to make everything fall. It's going to. It's going to. There's no end. resilience to his faith. Yes, no resilience to it. Like, and I worry that like I I I, I was reminded reading this review. I was reminded of that whole situation with Mario Lopez from like a month or so ago. Like there are people out here just reaching into the bank of BS that is their mind, saying whatever they think they know as if it was fact without thinking about the consequences of those words on those directly affected by them. Like I think of my friend to who was almost denied the privilege of working in the temple because of his locks because of somebody like Lumpy. I think of my older, fr- my other friend Jackson, like you know him too, Derek, who came home early from his mission and people have the audacity, the audacity to tell him what's wrong with him or what's wrong with his faith because of his early return, supposing to speak for God. Like, do you have any idea how dangerous it is to transmogrify God's word mm-hmm. into saying something that it doesn't actually say? You know, like it is so dangerous to do that, to condemn anyone, let alone an entire population of people based on an undeniable, unalterable part of their identity. Like, look at Matthew 23 if you want to get an idea of what how Jesus feels about those kinds of people. I Like, my fear is, that because you think these things, you are going to say them aloud. Like you've already typed them out on the internet. I fear you being put in charge of youth or something one day or being in the classroom with somebody who has not had the courage yet to come out and or uttering a gay kid or have a gay child. And you say these thoughts in passing, not thinking about the consequence they might have on your young people or on those people that you go to class with or those children you have stewardship over to church or your own kid or your own kid. Yes. Like all important. Like, God loves to send queer kids to straight parents that are homophobic. I just, yes, I'm, he does. He does. Yes, he does. So if you ever feel to say these things in public again, I would ask you to follow the advice of the illustrious Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf. Stop, Stop it. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Not rehearsed. Not rehearsed at all. But yeah, stop it, man. Like You're not helping yourself and you're not helping those you condemn. So I'm going to pray that you fi- find some compassion and not get so caught up in your own feelings that you that you elect to protect them before making space in God's kingdom for those who don't look, think, or love, or act like you do. La fin. Yeah. I just want to say one other thing about the authority of the prophets, because he's ac- ac- accusing us of denying the authority. Yes, man. And actually, I think we believe in the authority and the power and the reality of living prophets more than most of the people in the, uh, culturally in the church. Totes. Because what our culture has... Here, here, here's what people don't realize is that within the past maybe generation or so, our culture has really, really limited what what our prophets and apostles can say. Mm. Because, you know, read the Journal of Discourses. They felt comfortable saying wacky stuff all the time. Yep. They felt comfortable arguing with one another in general conference. They mm-hmm. felt comfortable like this. But now what we've got is gotten people so fragile that they've put the prophets and apostles up on a pedestal yep a pedestal is actually prison you don't have much room to move around Mm. they have limited our apostle and a prophets from saying what they would say publicly and here's why because the the brethren are afraid of of confusing people and of of damaging their faith and surprising them right if 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 they came out and freely said said stuff like they used to all these people would be in such such a disaster it would just Mm -hmm. be a a big big hot mess they're like well you said this and now you're saying this and and their faith would fall apart yep because they don't think that the apostles and prophets are humans that have good days and bad days um 
that that make mistakes, right? Mm. They the the apostles and the prophets culturally cannot be themselves right now. Right. They have to correlate everything they say publicly just so people like Lumpy Wheels doesn't get anything that's not di- digestible for him. Mm-hmm. Right? They 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 have to probably they it's so bad now that they have to talk to lawyers. Yep. In order to talk to the public. Yep. Like back back then Brigham would say whatever he wanted. Half of it was wrong. <laughs> you know, but he would say whatever he wanted in public. Now our prophets and apostles will not come to to certain press conferences or to certain things where they have to have you know say stuff in public without any rehearsal, mm-hmm. without any lawyers. And you know, right now we've got President Newsroom, right? You know, it's like the official PR of the church that now. Yeah. Is, is the the primary voice of, of the church to mm. us. We we hear from the apostles and the prophet, you know, general conference when when they when their stuff has been standardized and, and read through by correlation and, and their lawyers and everyone else. You know, I I actually don't want that. I don't have a problem with the apostles being themselves. I have a yeah. problem with the way our culture has really, really restricted if this is the the tail wagging the dog here. I would love to be led by apostles and prophets. I have no problem with them. They they just can't be themselves in this current culture. Mm. We have really, and I'm I'm probably guilty of it too. We have hampered them from being able to just tell it like it is. We have hampered we have hampered them from being able to say I was wrong. Culturally, it is now impossible for any apostle or prophet to say, whoops, I made a mistake because mm. that would mess up. That would wipe out half the church right now mm-hmm. because all of these people have no natural immunity to complexity. Mm. That hurt a little, Derek. What? <laughs> no immunity to natural complexity. I mean, they have no natural immunity to complexity. Like if they experience complexity in their faith journey, they it will just, it will wipe them out right, right. like a virus you know yeah. that they that they have no immunity for yeah and I, and i love i wish we had more revel- we haven't had any canonized revelation in, since 1978, 1978 that's yeah. not god's fault and that's not the apostles and prophets fault they're on their knees yep right they want to do more than we're letting them as uh, as a people mm so uh, here that's i am on us, I'm, then. I'm actually more on the side of the apostle and the prophets than mr Lumpy wheels here, who who would be devastated if if they came out tomorrow and said, you know what, we actually were wrong about women, or we were wrong about gays, or we were wrong about trans people. The current climate of the church would not let them say that. Mm. It it would be impossible for them to say that right now because of people sitting here on the ground. Mm. I don't have any problem with the apostles and prophets. I love them. I support them. I sustain them. I wish they had more power than they actually do. Oh jeez, yo! <laughs> I wish they had Wild more power than I do. People are think I'm trying to disempower them. No, I want to empower them by by putting my faith in them, by knowing that they can can re- go to the Lord with my questions. Yes, sir. And why is Mister Lumpy Wheels trying to prevent me from being able to tell them my questions so that they can go to the Lord with my questions? Make it make sense, Lumpy. Make it make sense. That's all I have to say about this. Cool. I'm done with Lumpy as well. I'm so done. cool. Um, you got anything else for you got a prayer roll as no, well? No. Okay. I'll talk about that next week. Sounds good, sir. Then this is a great time for us to move into uh, creating Christ like change. Yeah. 
So what I had for this week is basically really simple. It's the power of coming out. If you look at, you know, the past 40 or so years, 50 years of the, of the, the movement, one the biggest thing that we can do, if those of us who are LGBTQ, is to come out. To come out and, and not be ashamed of who you are and be public about it. Because what that does is it changes the whole room. Mm. It changes the space we're in. People will will act different, will talk, speak different. And it will not, not only will it just prevent these bad behaviors, it will actually cause people to change their minds because they will find it impossible to believe all those awful things they've heard about us mm. when they actually know me. Yes, sir. Right? Yes, sir. No one can look me in the face and say and believe all those things that you hear all around. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to say that, that coming out not only changes the space, but it also changes you, yourself, because then you are no longer afraid. And then once you have that confidence, that also goes back to changing the room. So that's just one very, um, very easy, uh, well, maybe not, shouldn't say easy, but it's... <laughs> it's simple. It, it's a simple thing. It's simple thing. to say, yes. right? It's not a big complicated thing to explain. Come out, if everyone did it, we'll all be okay. Mm-hmm. So that's all I had for, for creating Christ-like change. That's wonderful, Derek. That's great. Uh, do you have any announcements before we sign off? Nope. All right, sweet. Then, uh, again, thank you guys for listening. We really do appreciate uh, you guys enjoying the show, submitting your feedback, and uh, giving us ideas for bonus episodes. Um, keep them coming, guys, and uh, keep the feedback coming. Keep sharing the podcast with uh, you know those you love, those who you feel like can gain something positive from this. And uh, we really look yeah. forward to continuing this journey with you guys. And I'm, uh, in in some ways, grateful this for this one star review. As am not I. because it was good, but because it it allowed us to do some real theology here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Some real theology. That's a great way to put it. So yeah, if nothing else, then uh, we'll go ahead and sign off, and we'll see you guys okay. next week. Thank you so much for all of your support. Bye. <laughs>